Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season seven, episode four, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 1991 crime thriller, The Silence of the Lambs. Based on the book by Thomas Harris, the film was written by Ted Talley and directed by Jonathan Demme. It stars Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins, Scott Glenn, and Ted Levine. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Are you still here? Okay, cool. Then let's get this morning started. So in 1988, Thomas Harris published his sequel novel, The Silence of the Lambs, to his 1981 novel, Red Dragon. Upon the novel's release, it received rave reviews and was immediately considered for a motion picture. Now, this was something that I didn't realize, but there was already a film adaptation of Red Dragon. It came out in 1986, and it was called Manhunter. So it would make sense that The Silence of the Lambs would be considered for a film rather than Red Dragon, because that movie already came out. So, according to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, Jodie Foster was interested in playing the role of Clary Starling immediately after reading the novel. However, in spite of the fact that Foster had just won an Academy Award for her performance in the film The Accused, director Jonathan Demme was not convinced that she was right for the part. Having just collaborated on Married to the Mob, Demi's first choice for the role of Starling was Michelle Pfeiffer, who turned down, later saying, quote, It was a difficult decision, but I got nervous about the subject matter. Still not convinced, he went to Meg Ryan, of all people, who rejected it as well for its gruesome themes, and then to Laura Dern, of whom the studio was skeptical as not being a bankable choice. As a result, Foster was awarded the role due to her passion towards the character. Wow. Look at all those 90s starlets. (laughs) (laughs) I know, throwback. So multiple actors were considered for the role of Hannibal Lecter, but it eventually went to Anthony Hopkins due to his performance in David Lynch's 1980 film, The Elephant Man, a favorite of Demi's. Principal photography for the film took four months, ending in March 1990, with the majority of the film being shot in Pennsylvania and West Virginia. According to Rod Lurie and Carl Edwards, in what was a rare act of cooperation at the time, the FBI allowed scenes to be filmed at the FBI Academy in Quantico. Some FBI staff members even acted in bit parts. Oh, that's so cool. In a daring move, The Silence of the Lambs was released on Valentine's Day in 1991, which is so funny because Dracula was also released on Valentine's Day as well. So coincidence? Wow, that's so weird. Yes, it was a coincidence. But yeah, it's really weird. (laughs) 
So Silence of the Lambs grossed $14 million during its opening weekend and eventually grossed $131 million domestically with a total worldwide gross of $273 million, making it a sleeper hit that slowly but surely gained box office success and critical acclaim. Insane. That is insane. Holy cats. Roger Ebert gave the film a rare thumbs up and later added it to his list of the greatest movies of all time, which featured a few other horror films such as Nosferatu, Psycho, and the original Halloween. So at the 1992 Academy Awards, The Silence of the Lambs won big. As a matter of fact, it won the Big Five Academy Awards, which are Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Adapted Screenplay. And at the time, it was only the third film in history to accomplish this. Now, many people don't consider the film to be horror, which is complete and utter bullshit, but I do consider it horror. So I just want to say, look at this beautiful horror film winning all of these Oscars. Amazing, I say. That's so wild that people wouldn't consider this horror. So upon its release and over the years, The Silence of the Lambs has not been without controversy which we'll talk about basically the entire episode, so stay tuned. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Either way, the film paved the way for popular 90s thrillers, and according to Dennis King, quote, The Silence of the Lambs, with its dark Freudian subtext, its Poe-like air of foreboding, and its chillingly gritty characterizations, is simply a very tough and very scary little movie, unquote. With that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plot? Sure. FBI trainee and behavioral science profiler Clarice Starling is taken out of her training at the FBI Academy and thrown into the field to assist her superior and teacher, Jack Crawford, with the case of Buffalo Bill, a serial killer responsible for the kidnapping, murder, and skinning of young women in the area. Bill's latest soon-to-be victim is a young woman named Catherine, the daughter of a senator, and Clarice must race the clock to discover Buffalo Bill's real identity before Catherine is killed. Clarice is asked to speak with Dr. Hannibal Lecter, a well-known psychiatrist, cannibal, and serial killer, but she gets more than she bargained for when Lecter begins to play mind games with her as she does her best to extract the identity of Buffalo Bill from him. Throughout various visits to Lecter's cell in a high-security prison, Clarice learns that Bill had been connected to one of Lecter's patients and that Bill is using the skin of their victims to create a woman suit that they can don to keep their gender dysphoria at bay after having their application for a sex change rejected. Clarice seems to be getting closer to the truth, but she faces many obstacles, such as Lecter's obsession with her and the interference of Lecter's doctor, Frederick Chilton, who tries to take credit for Clarice's fieldwork after she rejects his sexual advances. Knowing that Clarice is close to cracking the case, Chilton has Lecter moved to a different holding cell in order to prevent her from completing her work and turns the media attention to himself. In the process of being transferred, Lecter is able to make an escape and kills the officers guarding his cell after Clarice tries to talk to him one more time about the true identity of Buffalo Bill. Using the skin from one of the officers' faces, he creates a mask and is carried right out of his temporary prison and put into an ambulance. From there, he makes a break for it, and his whereabouts remain unknown. 
Meanwhile, Clarice, using Lecter's psychopathic hints and her wits, is able to track down Buffalo Bill, whose real name is Jamie Gum, and kill them before they victimize Catherine, earning her place as an FBI agent. Her troubles aren't over, however, because at her promotion ceremony, she receives a call from Hannibal Lecter, who has escaped to Bellini. He tells her that if she leaves him alone, he won't come after her, and that later he will be having an old friend for dinner. It is revealed that the old friend he's talking about is Dr. Chilton, who he watches descend from a plane as he talks to Clarice on a payphone. Chilton disappears into the crowd and Lecter follows after him as the credits roll. Wow, thank you, Abby, for that wonderful plot summary. You are welcome. Okay, so the Bechdel test. It barely passes. There is, yeah, which is really surprising, but... There is one scene where Clarice and her friend Ardelia, who is played by Cassie Lemons from Candyman. Nice! Yeah, they briefly discuss the senator's televised plea to get her daughter back. That's about it. (laughs) Yeah. Nancy's dream teen test is almost just as bad, even though there is one yes on here. Um, Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? No. Did a woman write, direct, or produce the film? No. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? No. And were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? Yes. And it's problematic as fuck. Yeah. Where do we even begin in this discussion? Yeah. Um, (laughs) Well, let's start by saying that throughout this episode, we'll be using the pronouns they, them when referring to the character Buffalo Bill, a.k.a. James Gum. There's a lot of controversy behind this character and their backstory when it comes to using the proper pronouns, so we will we, we will be saying they, them. However, we're going to come across some quotes where the writers refer to Gum as he, him, or she, her. We're also going to be mentioning some very outdated terms due to some quotes that contain words like transvestite and transsexual, yeah. so please be aware of that, yeah. Um, Okay, so I guess we can start with The Silence of the Lambs and Psychology. Yes. Oh, my God. I love it so much. So let's look at the psychological profiles of our two main killers. Um, For Buffalo Bill or James Gum, I think it's important to look at the killers that the character was modeled after. So to name a few, we have like Jerry Brudos, Ed Gein, Ted Bundy, and Gary Heidnick. And if any of you are interested in true crime and haven't heard of any of these guys, definitely look them up because the cases are pretty interesting. Um, I don't I guess I don't really want to say compelling because they're so awful. (laughs) In a nutshell, they were responsible for the death of multiple women and they tortured, sexually assaulted, cannibalized and also personified their victims. And Gum is clearly struggling with gender and body dysphoria. They want to be a woman and believes that women's bodies are superior to their own, but dysphoria can be complicated by other factors such as depression, anxiety, and not feeling like you're part of a particular group. So isolation can be dangerous for individuals who feel a sense of separation with their own bodies to begin with. And then when you couple that with a personality disorder or psychopathy, it's a recipe for disaster. So that's kind of um, kind of a look into Gum's character. And then as for Hannibal Lecter, 
There's a really good paper written by um, Bettina Gregory, I think is how you pronounce her name, and it's called Hannibal Lecter, The Honey in the Lion's Mouth, in which she does a deep dive into Lecter's childhood and parts of his youth in which he experiences trauma. I won't go into too much detail here because most of the story is explored in the novelizations as far as his background, but basically, Lecter lived through war, famine, witnessed his younger sister be eaten by soldiers, and he watched his entire family be slaughtered, pretty much. Now, we have talked about how trauma affects our psyche in previous episodes, so it's not hard to imagine how events like this could have scarred Hannibal Lecter. And in this article, Gregory elaborates about Lecter's relationship with his sister and how much he adored her. Now, this leads me to believe that maybe he sees his sister in Clarice, and the obsession that he has with her could have an element of that mixed in with psychopathy. And that gives him that like gut-wrenching, possessive, manipulative persona. He wants to know more about Clarice, and asking about her childhood gives him an edge to his psychopathy and the way that he toys with her. So typically I wouldn't bring up details of a character's past if it's not included in the film, but I think it's important here to understand a little bit about Lecter's past in order to understand where he's at now in the film. So his untreated PTSD has evolved into a truly monstrous personality disorder, psychopathy. But here's something interesting, too, that I learned from a study by Carolyn Moole and Angela Nickerson from the School of Psychology at the University of Sydney, Australia. They found in a study in which they explored the relationship between psychopathic personality traits and intrusive thoughts caused by PTSD that having psychopathic personality traits actually protects subjects from the intrusive thoughts and images caused by traumatic events. Yeah, so my theory is that Lecter was born with a personality disorder that allowed him to not only overcome the experiences he faced as a child, but actually integrate them into his everyday life and normalize the behavior that he saw as a child. Yeah, so he's incredibly intelligent, and as we know, he's a psychiatrist, so he understands the workings of the brain, and maybe he knows them too well. So... Could he maybe justify his actions as a mode of, like, self-defense against his childhood traumas? That's kind of how I feel about it. Yeah, like, I don't know anything about psychology. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but hearing that really kind of kind of makes gives him sort of an edge that I, I never, didn't really have with him before, like... And I think that's part of the reason why he be, is so scary to begin with for a lot of people is, I mean, Anthony Hopkins plays him very well. Like, he trained himself not to blink um, when he was doing this role. So, like, yeah, he doesn't blink. He doesn't, like, I mean, he does once in a while, but it's very limited. If you watch the film, like, you'll notice, like, he's always has his eyes open and, and it's the freakiest thing ever. Oh, my God. He's um, so scary. <laughs> He is so scary. And the fact that he is able to diagnose you makes it even more frightening because as a therapist, like you should be able to, or a psychiatrist, whatever, like someone who is there to help your, your mentality, like you should be able to feel like you trust them. Right. And when you can't trust your doctor, like you, how can you trust yourself, especially if they're diagnosing you? You know what I mean? Yeah, True. So the fact that he has 
all of this trauma that he hasn't dealt with properly. And yet he becomes somebody who deals with people with trauma. Yeah. It adds it adds to the terror of him and this film, really. Oh my god, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Oh. Ugh. Okay. So let's talk about the use of the rites of passage in The Silence of the Lambs. Um, so according to author S. Elmquist, in his essay entitled Cultural Analysis of Jonathan Demme's The Silence of the Lambs, he says, quote, the film, the film deals explicitly with the notion of cultural and spiritual transition, particularly with that of Arnold van Gennep, I think that's how you say the last name, uh, Gennep's refers to as the rites of passage. In Rites of Passage, Van Gennep states early on that his objective in the text is to assemble all of the ceremonial patterns which accompany a passage from one situation to another or from one cosmic or social world to another. So basically, right, Rites of Passage have like three phases. There's the separation phase, the transitional phase, and the incorporation in one case, let's use Clarice as an example, she's our final girl, right? And she starts out as a rookie FBI trying to desperately prove herself and to become an agent for the behavioral science unit. And the first phase for her is, of course, separation. So to get to where she needs to go, she separates herself from the other rookie agents. Like, she goes on this mission alone and visits Lecter at the asylum a few times and follows up on his leads, and she does this all by herself. Mm. Uh, Next would be the transitional phase, and this is the, like, middle-slash-climax of the film where Clarice begins to piece together everything on her own, and she goes to Buffalo Bill's home. Now, she could just run away or just leave, you know, once she realizes that it's them, but she doesn't. Instead, she confronts Buffalo Bill and she kills them. And this, like, is her completion of her rite of passage. Like, Clarice is now in the incorporation phase after this. Uh, By solving the case and taking down the killer herself, she has been incorporated into the behavioral science unit of the FBI. Like, she has earned her new identity and she is now re-entering society with her new status. And according to Madison Breck, quote, Sexism and harassment remain an everyday reality for many careers. Seeing how Clarice deals with these things is empowering, especially since she doesn't let anything prevent her from becoming one of the finest FBI trainees at Quantico, unquote. So Clarice's rite of passage is like an inspiration for women in very male-dominated workplaces. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why this film resonates with so many women, especially. Mm-hmm. At least cisgender women, and we'll talk more about that later. But honestly, like, I'm sorry, I'm out of breath because I'm pregnant. <laughs> no. Oh, I feel like I'm running a race talking. Um, <laughs> oh, God. Okay, so, uh, well, okay, honestly, the same rite of passage theme can also be connected to the character of Hannibal Lecter. Uh, the film begins with him as a prisoner, and like this starts the process of him separating him separating himself from the other prisoners. Mm-hmm. And like one of the prisoners flings his semen at Clarice, and it's disgusting. Oh my god! Ugh. Yeah, and they start like all the other guys in there start barking at her and like yelling at her, and Hannibal Lecter like calls her back, and he's like, "I would never." 
let anyone treat you like they did, like blah, blah, blah. And he is like more civilized than them. And so like that's his separation from the other prisoners. Yeah. And then like begins his official and then literal transition when he kills the guards and escapes from the prison. And at the end of the film, he is a free man and he has reincorporated himself into society so that he may kill once again. So he also has a rite of passage in this. Yeah, and I I really do love this idea of rites of passage because <laughs> really Clarice is the only one of the three being like her Hannibal Lecter and Buffalo Bill that completes her rite of passage successfully. Yes, that's so true. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could argue that like with Hannibal Lecter, he's successful in his own eyes because he has murdered and eaten people and become famous for it and escaped. And Gum is also going through a transition, but it's it's been, like, perverted. So while their lives run parallel, they're running in opposite directions. Like, Clarice uses her cunning and intelligence to get from start to finish and get the job done, albeit while avoiding the sexual advances of her male counterparts and, like, a few slip-ups in regards to her investigation strategies. But still, she comes out on top. And, you know, Gum is going through rites of passage that serial killers go through. So the process of claiming victims and escalation and, like, the signature clues, the patterns, the key factors that go into the making of a serial killer... Okay, so let's talk about the gays in Silence of the Lambs. So, like, this was something that I had not ever noticed before when watching this film. And like I said, like, I hadn't seen this film in years. And to be honest, I think I only saw it on TV before this. But um, anyway, almost immediately I noticed how there are so many close-ups in this film. Oh, yeah. And... Yeah, and what's really wild about that is that while Clarice is in her separation phase of her rite of passage, all of the male close-ups have, like, the men staring right into the camera. And Clarice's close-ups have her, like, sort of looking to the side. And this is really interesting because we identify with her in a sense because of this. But we also get the feeling that maybe Clarice has a hard time looking these men in the eye during the separation phase because it's mm. that's probably the hardest part of the rites of passage is the separation so it would make sense that they are just staring into her soul basically while she is kind of like in this in-between phase you know yeah and According to Nicholas Barber, quote, more than anything else, Silence of the Lambs is a film about what it's like for women to be stared at by men, unquote. And I want to quote Madison Breck again in her article, The Enduring Feminist Vision of the Silence of the Lambs. She says, quote, besides how terrifying Hannibal Lecter peering into your soul is, there's something else important going on in these scenes. All of the male characters are breaking the fourth wall and looking directly into the camera's lens as they address Clarice. Clarice never looks right into the lens, and her gaze always goes slightly off to the side as she returns to the men's glares, friend or foe. 
And the reason this decision is significant is that subconsciously, this makes us identify with Clarice's point of view. When the men look into the camera, we feel that they are looking right at us, when really they are looking at Clarice. We see precisely what she sees. The brilliance of The Silence of the Lambs is that the movie not only subverts the male gaze, but reflects that gaze back onto the viewer instead of letting them contribute to it, unquote. Mm-hmm. And it's not until about the midpoint of the film, or... Clarice's transitional phase that Clarice finally is able to make eye contact with everyone in the film male female like everyone and then going back to like the rites of passage this is important because she is now able to be on everyone's level making it easier for her to be incorporated into her new her new status so yeah like she does eventually if you look right towards the middle of the film, she is able to like stare right back at people, which is really important. And that was one of the parts that I thought, like my husband and I were watching this film and he was like, look, she's looking into the lens. And I was like, oh my gosh, yes. Like, and it's right when she's like becoming more confident in her transitional phase. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, I find it super interesting that like this starts to happen when she and Lecter start to form like their weird little bond. The stronger that becomes, the closer she and Crawford become as well, because that's part of her assignment. So whenever she is, like, strengthening a bond with another character in the film, she becomes more confident. And I don't necessarily think it has to do with, like, who the other person is. I think it's more to do with, like, the fact that she's been alone for so long, that she's a little bit, like scared and tired and she has this quality of a very smart and strong yet shy young woman and when the movie opens we see her running and that's basically what her whole life has been like she has to keep going to make it to the next checkpoint in her life until she fulfills her destiny and can finally stand still and when she feels grounded that's when she starts, like, staring hard into people. Like, she stands her ground firmly because she knows what she has to do, and she challenges her male counterparts by looking them in the face and demanding them to be heard. And it's a really empowering shift, and I think it's what makes her character so important for women. Because, like, I feel as though you you don't really get that like subtle change with a lot of female characters Clarice is just like bam like her character is there and I don't know it's hard to explain but she does a natural transition like that's why I love this whole rites of passage thing because it it is so incredibly clear like boom 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 she hits all three phases and she hits them naturally yes and I think that's another reason why people really love this film because it doesn't nothing in this film feels forced none of the characters actions feel forced like they all have an agency that plays out in a natural way right yeah Clary Starling uh let's talk about how she's a feminist heroine for a lot of a lot of people um and I think it goes without saying that she's a badass like she like is an inspiration to a lot of different people like you were telling me that your boyfriend's mother like really loves this film and I had a friend in college Lindsay she used to talk about this film all the time like she loved Clarice Starling and she loved all of Thomas Harris's books and I think Clarice paved the way for many other bold female characters in film and and in TV particularly Agent Scully from the X-Files like she was a huge inspiration to that character Mm -hmm. and according to Sarah Marshall of Bitch Media quote 
In Jodie Foster's acceptance speech, which she delivered in a pale pink suit that made her red AIDS ribbon all the more visible to viewers at home, Foster dedicated her Oscar to all of the women who came before me who never had the chances that I've had to the survivors and the pioneers and the outcasts, my blood, my tradition, unquote. So that's pretty powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Are you kidding me? Yeah, so according to Dawn Keatley of HorrorHomeroom.com, she says, quote, that Clarice is a woman in a man's world could merely serve to render her more masculine, more androgynous, as Carol Clover says the final girl must be. But Silence of the Lambs goes out of its way to represent Clarice as female, as a woman in a man's world. There are repeated shots in the film, for instance, of Clarice surrounded by men. And for me, this works much less to showcase her androgyny than to showcase the fact that she is female, unquote. And this is interesting because Clarice seems to be able to solve this case on her own because of the fact that she understands femininity, while the other men in her world do not. Like, her boss Crawford sends her to Lecter knowing that because she is a woman, he might be more likely to open up to her. And she understands that the senator is trying to make her daughter appear like a human, not an object, when she pleads to Buffalo Bill that they return her daughter by saying her name over and over. And she makes the connection that Bill is making a human suit out of women's skin when she visits one of the victim's homes and sees all of the very arguably traditional feminine sewing designs. And according to Annalise Griffin, quote, Foster brings a ferocious intelligence to the role and offers a masterclass in workplace sexism. She plays both the quotidian and extraordinary discomforts of being the only woman in the room and sometimes the building. She's sexualized, condescended to, used as a token and a pawn, and yet even when her body trembles, her gaze never wavers, unquote. And that is true. Like, yes, her gaze lingers to the side at first, like we mentioned, but by the end of the film, she is steadfast. Like, we see how her character grows throughout the film because of this, and it's really neat. It really is. I love it. (laughs) However, um, and here we go. This is where the positive aspects of her character end for (laughs) some people because of her character's growth and heroism comes at the expense of another woman a trans woman. And this was a huge issue in the 90s when the film came out. And honestly, it's still a problem today. Mm. And I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent here and kind of explain like, like why like this is still something we still talk about today. Like this isn't the only thing, but this is just, I guess, an example. Um, When the Women's Rights March took place in 2017, trans women were excluded in more ways than one. And, of course, we all remember the pink pussy hat. Well, there's a reason it sort of disappeared completely. (sighs) According to Christian Jordan Seamus for the Detroit Free Press, she says, quote, The reason, the sentiment that the pink pussy hat excludes and is offensive to transgender women and gender non-binary people who don't have typical female genitalia and to women of color because their genitals are more likely to be brown than pink. The concept of the pussy hat grew from an idea that two friends had after the 2016 presidential election, and they wanted to find a way for protesters to make a strong, unifying visual statement during the inaugural Women's March in Washington, unquote. And apparently, pink was chosen because of its like traditional connections to femininity and not because of genitalia. 
And now like some trans women have spoken out about their feelings on the pussy hat, like Liliana Angel Riaz, who is a trans woman of color. And she said, quote, I definitely understand that there are people that are concerned that the pussy hat, the pink cat hat, is very specific for people with vaginas, but it was a very specific thing, specific to when President Trump said, grab him by the pussy. And so to me, it was a play on words that shows power. I also think for me, it's more symbolic. There are people who believe that because not only it is a pink pussy hat, which can mean only white women, that it could be a race and gender thing. For me, it doesn't read that way, unquote. So obviously, what can be offensive to one person may not entirely be offensive to another because we all come from different walks of life. You know, even if someone else is trans, that doesn't necessarily mean that their experience is going to be the same as somebody else who is trans. Right. And like when we asked our LGBT plus listeners on social media if they felt Bill was an offensive character, the majority of them said no, which surprised me. Um, But again, like and one of our listeners did say they're like, like and they said they're like, I actually really love this film. They're like, but um, I never really thought about like how it could maybe affect me, but I can see how it can affect somebody else. Right. Yeah. And that's exactly how um, Liliana Angel Riaz felt about the the pussy hat. So, yeah, that's fair. You know, so like I said, like that just because it's not problematic for one person doesn't mean it's not problematic for somebody else. And Joss Triute said of the film in her article, My Auntie Buffalo Bill, quote, Silence of the Lambs is so fundamentally a work of trans misogyny, one that advances ideas so intricately tied to trans misogynistic Janice Raymond style cis feminism that any truly feminist engagement with this film must grapple with these issues, unquote. So with all of that said, let's get into our final thought and our most controversial topic of the day, <laughs> transphobia in Silence of the Lambs. So this topic was, of course, very difficult for me to condense. There are a lot of different hot takes commenting on whether or not the villain of this tale, Buffalo Bill, is in fact a trans woman in the first place. Yeah. According to Eric Hansen, quote, Levine, the actor who plays Buffalo Bill, did a lot of research in preparation for his role, reading up on on several of the serial killers that inspired Buffalo Bill in the novel. In particular, he took an interest in Ed Gein and Jerry Brudos, who you mentioned earlier, Abby, both of whom skinned their victims. This weighed heavily on Levine, who is still shaken by these things years later. Also in preparation for the role, Levine did research into the gay and transgender community, and this is where his role really began to take shape. Levine began his work by going to bars frequented by crossdressers and people going through transition. While there, he said he was struck by an epiphany. James Gum wasn't there, unquote. So, actor Ted Levine is quoted as saying, quote, The stance I took was more of an acutely homophobic, heterosexual man doing that mocking thing. I kind of took it 
that he was sort of intimidating the way his mother might have talked to the poodle. By hearing that voice, in a sense, he's sort of talking to himself, his inner poodle, as it were. The other thing he's not is he's not a transvestite either or a transsexual. He was playing these with these ideas and he's tried on a whole lot of personas and just got hooked on this idea of dressing in women's skin, unquote. Hmm. So going back to, quote, Eric Hansen, he says, quote, more elaboration on Gum's background was in the book, which clarified that he wasn't, in fact, gay or transgender, but posing as one. In both the novel and several scenes cut from the film, Crawford speaks to a doctor, Dr. Danielson, at a reassignment clinic while following a lead. In the novel, Dr. Danielson refers to transsexuals as decent people. Crawford agrees and applies as follows, the whole idea is the man we want is not your patient. It would be someone you refused because you recognize that he was not a transsexual, unquote. Ugh. To somebody, this might seem like, oh, good, like Buffalo Bill's not transgender. He's just a fraud. However, this is still complicated because someone else cannot determine your own sexuality, you know? Yeah. So even if this doctor doesn't want to do the reassignment surgery because they think that gum isn't transgender, that's still someone else deciding someone else's gender for them. Uh, yeah. Which is insanely problematic. And it's it's like it's almost like, I don't know, it's almost like the filmmakers and the actors and even Thomas Harris himself wanted to have their cake and eat it too. I don't know. For me, it's really complicated beyond belief. And, you know, and this is something that I, I noticed um, when I recently watched the film before we recorded, Buffalo Bill is actually wearing a Venus of Wollendorf or a Woman of Wollendorf necklace. Yes, I caught that too. Yeah. Um, and the Woman of Wollendorf is a goddess figure and a symbol of fertility. According to Leroy McDormand and Catherine McCoyd, Quote, the figurines may have been created as self-portraits by women. This theory stems from the correlation of the proportions of the statues to how the proportions of women's bodies would seem if they were looking down at themselves, which would have been the only way to view their bodies during this period, unquote. Mm. So this symbol could be seen as a self-representation of Bill. They would be wearing it because this was how that they saw themselves, yeah. Now, the if you this is really crazy, but then again, much like the character of Bill, the woman of Wollendorf has also had a history of controversial interpretations because some historians believe that she wasn't like a a goddess that was like a self-representation, but she was just a good luck charm a good luck charm for male hunters. Mm. So she was sort of used as like a a like a fertility fetish instead. Yeah. To help to help men, not women. Oh, wow, that's super interesting. Yes. Wow. It's insane. Well, going back really quickly to what you said about Buffalo Bill in the book, my stance on this whole thing is that like it would have been so much better in the film to have the killer posing as a trans person. As like a way to like throw everyone off. Yes. It would have made so much more sense, given that they've got Nazi symbolism throughout their home. It would have truly personified the evilness of Buffalo Bill's character. Instead of demonizing someone from the trans community 
and giving a representation of a trans person as someone who is severely mentally ill, they could have used Buffalo Bill as an example of someone who despises a certain group of people, I guess, who kind of dons this fake persona as a way to trick the FBI to throw them off, like you said. So I guess what I'm trying to get at here is that for me, it would have made more sense for a white male supremacist to be the suspect in a string of killings like this because he is trying to place the blame on someone like not like himself, i.e. a trans person, than it would for an actual trans person to commit the crimes. So because it's a stigma that has been perpetuated by Hollywood for a really long time, we judge by Gum's actions and the items that they have throughout their home that they are obviously twisted in a way that they perceive people who are different from them. So, like, all in all, using a fake trans persona to trick the police into thinking that the killer is someone else entirely makes more sense than to have an actual trans person be the killer. Well, and that's sort of what they try to do, because they're just like, oh, like, Buffalo Bill isn't actually trans. They are just pretending, or they are just, like, they're just trying different things to like change their persona mm-hmm. but like I can see how that's offensive to actual trans people like there's never a reveal of Buffalo Bill being like you're right I'm not trans you know yeah I don't understand and like changing why. and like changing their actions you know and so uh, it's really complicated. It like I said, have... like I feel like everyone wanted to like have their cake and eat it too. Yes. And it literally could have been like a two minute scene when Clarice calls Crawford on the phone from the home of the missing woman who was one of Buffalo Bill's victims. And she's talking about like who the killer is. I feel like they definitely could have thrown that in there. They like did this to throw us off the trail. It would have made so much more sense. Right. And trans people, especially trans women, are more likely to be victims of abuse Mm -hmm. and victims, like, be killed. Right. Right. I think this is just a really bad case of ignorance, honestly. Yeah, I would agree. I want to end the episode with another quote from Josh Truitt, who says in her article, My Auntie Buffalo Bill, she says, To accept the film's dismissal of Bill as not really trans and to take this as an argument against the film's film's trans misogyny is to also accept that many trans women, including bi-trans women and trans lesbians like myself, are not really trans. Clarice defeats Bill, who crumples to the ground, curled into... a shaking form clearly meant to convey an ableist vision of monstrousness. And Clarice rescues femininity from the darkest depths of male violence, the lair of a trans woman, unquote. Woof. Woof is right. It's definitely some food for thought. It definitely makes you look at the film a bit differently, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is a good thing. I don't think there's anything wrong with having your favorite films challenged and Uh, I think that this is a great way to kind of look at it. And whether you agree or not, you know, no matter what your background, uh, I think it's interesting to kind of see all different aspects of it. Yeah. I mean, the film is definitely a time capsule. Yes, absolutely. Right down to Jodie Foster's haircut. (laughs) (laughs) Incredible. (laughs) 
Okay, well, that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning, Nancy. We hope that you all have a safe and wonderful new year because it's New Year's Eve today. Yay! Yeah, treat yourself to some Good Morning, Nancy merch and check out our shop, guys. We've got coffee mugs on sweatshirts and t-shirts and more. Head on over to goodmorningnancy.com slash merch and click the shirt icon and it'll take you right to our shop. And if you're not already a patron, go to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy for some sweet extra content in your coffee. We upload full-length episodes early, give away patron gifts, review horror trailers and TV shows and new movies over there too sometimes. So become a patron, won't you? Yeah, you can also help support the show by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. You can also help us out by telling a friend and spreading the word about our show. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.